You're listening to a Soulfire Productions podcast. Welcome to Wellness Realness, where we get very real about all things health and wellness, physical, mental, financial, and spiritual. I'm your host, Christina Rice, a nutritional therapy practitioner and energy healer turned holistic business coach for ambitious entrepreneurs. And I'm here to help you up-level every aspect of your life. Remember my disclaimer, the information in this podcast is general health and nutrition advice and not a replacement for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You can find an endless amount of content from me and join my online membership at christinaricewellness.com. And if you want exclusive behind-the-scenes content and my most unfiltered self, DM a screenshot of your iTunes rating and review to Wellness Realness Crew on Instagram and request to follow my super secret account. You can also join the Wellness Realness Podcast Tribe Facebook group to hang out with other listeners in the crew. Get ready for some Wellness Realness. Today's episode is all about conscious relationships, quality communication in our relationships, and rethinking love as today's guest likes to say. In today's episode, I am chatting with Monica Berg, who is an international speaker, a spiritual thought leader, the author of Fear is Not an Option, and her most recent book release is Rethink Love, Three Steps to Being the One, Attracting the One, and Becoming One. Monica gives a lot of great strategies for elevating the quality of your relationships, enhancing the love you can give, appreciating the love that you receive, and just building a really solid foundation for a lasting, fulfilling relationship. It's about understanding yourself and your partner and how the two of you can work together to communicate as well as possible and just up-level your relationship overall. And I really love this book and her approach because there is so much emphasis on really understanding yourself and loving yourself and why that is such an important part of being able to be in an elevated relationship. So I'm really excited for you to hear this episode with Monica. You can find more from her at rethinklife.today and on Instagram, she is monicaberg74 and you can check out her books on Amazon. I also want to remind you about the giveaway I'm running throughout the rest of March 2020 with Beekeepers Naturals, one of my favorite brands. I use their products daily and love them. So we're doing a little giveaway this month and there will be three winners. Each will receive one of their Bee Powered Hive Superfood Complex jars and four bottles of the Propolis Throat Spray, which are both amazing at enhancing your immunity. That is an epic prize. I go through the Bee Powered and Propolis so quickly, so I would love to win this. All you have to do to enter into this giveaway is follow Beekeepers Naturals on Instagram. Their handle is beekeepers underscore naturals and follow Wellness Realness Podcast on Instagram. And then take a screenshot of your rating and review on iTunes for this podcast, Wellness Realness, and email that to podcast at christinaricewellness.com. If you do those three things, you will be entered to win this giveaway. Again, there will be three winners. I will announce them at the beginning of April, and I am wishing you the best of luck. So my advice is to press pause right now, enter that because it'll take you two minutes, and then press play and listen to the rest of this episode with Monica Berg. Wearing blue light blocking glasses is one of the easiest biohacks you can introduce into your life to support your sleep, to balance out your hormones, to improve your mood, and to improve your energy levels. 
And that's why I really want to share with you my favorite blue blocker company, Blue Blocks. I've tried so many different types of blue light blocking glasses over the years, and these by far give the best results because they are 100% backed by the science. Orange lenses are only blocking a part of the blue and green light spectrum that disrupts our circadian rhythm, which in turn causes health issues. But Blue Blocks has red lenses, their Sleep Plus red lens, that are tested to make sure they're blocking that full spectrum so that you get better sleep, deeper sleep, less anxiety, and ultimate relaxation. I like to wear my Sleep Plus red lens with the Parker frame as soon as the sun goes down. And then during the day, I wear the blue light clear lens, which is a blue light filtering lens for the daytime, best for people who work in more natural lighting. But if you work in more artificial lighting or you struggle with seasonal depression, I would recommend the Summer Glow Yellow Lens. These daytime glasses will help reduce migraines, headaches, macular degeneration, and digital eye strain, which is super important if you're on a screen all day. Like me, I notice that my head hurts, I feel foggy, I get moody, I'm just really cranky if I don't wear my blue light clear lens. They have about 20 different frames to pick from, so you'll definitely find something that you like. I get compliments on these glasses all the time, and you can also send in your own frames or use their custom-made prescription service if you'd like something a little bit more customized. And if you really want to amp up your sleep game, check out their Remedy Sleep Mask, which is a 100% light-blocking sleep mask. This has changed the game for me. And for every pair of glasses they sell, Blue Box will donate a pair of reading glasses to Restoring Vision, who gifts them to someone in need. So if you want to get your hands on the best blue light blockers on the market, just go to blueblocks.com, that's B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com, and use my code wellness, W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S, for 15% off. Again, that's blueblocks.com, B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com, and my code wellness, W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S, will get you 15% off. When you use these every day, trust me, you'll notice a huge improvement in your productivity, your mood, your energy, and of course, your sleep. Thank you, Monica, so much for coming on the podcast. I've been so excited to chat with you. I loved reading your book, but for people who aren't familiar with you, maybe you can just share with my audience a little bit about yourself and what you do. So I call myself a change junkie because I actively pursue and seek change. And I think that everybody thinks they want change. We all crave change, but to pursue it is something else. And I was one of those people who, you know, I liked a routine and I like to know, you know, that I'm going to be able to do the things that I do. And if you work hard, this is what's going to happen. And then life happens to you and things happen that you don't expect. And then it becomes really uncomfortable. So I kind of changed my whole approach to life and how I experience it. And therefore my work reflects that and that everything that happens to me, I want it to happen through me. So I have the mindset of looking at life in a way that when things come up, you know, right away, I'm like, okay, so what's the opportunity? What's the gift? What can I learn and what can I do? And that's basically how I talk about and do everything. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I I didn't start that way for sure, which I think is what is really inspiring about the work I do. You know, some people can naturally be risk takers or they love change, but I can tell you I'm a Virgo. I was really kind of type A perfectionist and I was really unhappy. So Mm -hmm. I found a different way to navigate life and that's what I like to share and that's my passion. So what allowed you to find that new way? Like what inspired that mindset shift? It came with the birth of my second child. I have four children and I found out a few hours after he was born that he had Down syndrome. Mm -hmm. 
And I, I never wanted to feel like that again. It wasn't so much as diagnosis, but it was, what do you mean? I mean, this wasn't supposed to happen, right? I was so sure I knew how my life was going to turn out to a T. And then there was this curveball and I had a choice to make. I mean, after the initial shock and the fear and all of the stages of grief, because, you know, for nine months I was carrying a baby that I thought was different than the one that came out. And I allowed myself to feel and be human about it. And then I thought, well, this isn't really who you want to be, right? The way you're reacting to it is not really, because I was already studying spirituality for many, many years. And I thought, okay, I have a choice in this moment. I can either be worried about each day, or I can realize that in change, there's great power. And I want to change the way I see things. And I want to change the way that I live. And I want to embrace and understand fully that you know, I happened to find out about his disabilities on the day he was born, but I had his life to find out about his gifts. And I think most people experience life the other way around, right? We think we're going to have a typical child and, and we do. And then maybe at age 15, we find out, well, you know, I don't like them so much or there's something more seriously wrong with them or even ourselves, right? So I realized that everything's an illusion. I mean, really everything, the way we perceive life the way we live it is by our 1% reality, our five senses. And there's a whole nother realm that I rather tap into and derive meaning and purpose from there. Did your husband make this shift alongside you? He was actually a little bit ahead of me. He's very spiritual. And I I think that was part of the, you know, again, for both of us, it was real shock and we weren't sure what that would mean day to day. And in fact, for a lot of couples who have a child with a disability, it breaks them apart, right? And Mm -hmm. It could have done that for us, but instead it drew us together. So we became more vulnerable and honest in a way we had never been before. I would say, you know, I always loved him, but I hadn't identified the belief system that I had, which was, you know, you can rely on the people you love, but at the end of the day, you can only rely on yourself. And I didn't realize that that was actually creating a space where he knew 80% of of me, you know, Mm -hmm. of my past, of my thoughts, of my fears and my worries. So this actually was an opportunity for us as a couple that we came up upon together, but I had more fear initially um, of what the day-to-day would be. And he was more certain that it's going to be okay. And then it turned out to be exceptional, really. Tell me more about that fear. Well, my, I wrote another book called Fears on an Option. And Mm -hmm. in that I identified that we all have fear, right? We're born with fear. It's a normal part, but, and some people have it to greater or lesser degrees. And we think our fear is about something, right? I thought my fear was about uh, mental disabilities. My uncle became schizophrenic when I was eight. And it, in my eight-year-old view, it was seemingly overnight. Nobody explained, you know, that big change, like suddenly he was really erratic and he terrified me. So when Josh was born, I remember thinking like of all of the afflictions, why did it have to be his head or his brain? Because it tapped into that fear that I had. Through breaking through fear and really challenging it, I realized my biggest fear was the fear of the unknown, right? What will Josh be like when he hits puberty? What will he, you know, will he live with us when I'm 80? You know, like it, I started, and he was only a day old when I'm having these thoughts that are so far down the line. And that's what I think fear can grip all of us where we are paralyzed and we're not living our destiny and our purpose. Mm -hmm. So I think that was the first thing that I really chipped away at was the fear aspect. And then from there, I was very liberated. And then from there, change really became very advanced and very 
a chosen thing. So I think first I tackled fear and then I chose change. What was that process like tackling that fear? Well, because my greatest fear kind of had happened, mm-hmm. I realized completely that again, it's all an illusion because we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So I decided I'm not going to live my life like that anymore. Like worrying today of, you know, what's going to happen tonight or worrying tomorrow, what that's going to be like. I became very much in the present and very mindful. So in this moment right now, we're talking and that's it. I'm not anywhere else. I'm not worried about anything else. It's this connection. And that was a new thing. I think that again, it's human nature to kind of be like, what's next? And I didn't want to live my life like that. So that was a big thing that that first happened. And then it was really just when you're living in the moment, then you are actually happier and you ask yourself questions like, am I doing what I meant to do? Am I enjoying what I'm doing or should I be doing something else? You kind of live life in a completely different way. And also it takes out the external noise, other people's opinions of you and judgments. I mean, none of that mattered. I became so free and liberated in ways I never had imagined. I didn't realize how much weight I put into what people thought about me. And after that, I was like, because I remember when he was born, I actually, he was probably eight months old and he was in the stroller and I ran into somebody from high school. I remember thinking, oh, I hope they don't realize that he has Down syndrome. And I thought, oh my God, did you actually just think that? And I was thinking like, I don't want to be that person that cares so much what other people think. So I started to become really attuned with my thoughts and my belief systems. And then I challenged them and shipped away at them and created new ones that were much kinder. Yeah. I think it's very difficult for a lot of people to even be aware of those thought processes. And it's true. That's why the first nine chapters of my new book, Rethink Love, is all about that process. I mean, really, it's that I think I didn't realize it at the time. I actually didn't even realize it till I did the audio version that that process of being authentic and finding your voice and being able to hear your real desires, your true essence, and to Mm -hmm. to not be afraid to express that. Most people skip that step and they don't mean to, but in our society, there's a lot of emphasis on, you know, you'll be happy when, and that Mm -hmm. when usually is when you find your partner or your soulmate or you get married or you have kids. It's like the, the dream, right? It's a little bit different, I think, in this generation, but that is like the cherished delusion, as I call it in my book, where people think that that's when my life will kind of begin. So I spend a lot of time, and I say, even if you're you know, divorced or widowed or you know, in a relationship or engaged, you, you still have to go back to this fundamental first step of knowing who you are, knowing what you believe. So when you enter a relationship or you navigate through a relationship, you are so rooted in that space that you're going to be able to give and receive love the way you truly desire it. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you feel like you did before your marriage? I do because I had another thing happen. So those are like the three big things, right? My Mm -hmm. uncle who became schizophrenic and then later with my son. But in between those two experiences, I had developed anorexia and I was 17. And that was the opportunity that I got to really learn to love myself. Because imagine I was killing myself slowly. I mean, it doesn't, it's not logical to starve yourself nearly to death, but that's what I was doing. And I was so lonely at the time and I craved love so completely. And I remember coming to the epiphany that, you know, you can't look for this externally, whatever it is that you're craving and the lack that you feel, you have to find a way to learn to give that to yourself, or you're never going to attract the person for you. So 
I worked really hard. I started to journal and I read and I spoke to people that I could learn this kind of practice from. And um, I think that was the beginning of me hearing my voice, finding my passion and, uh, and taking my wants and desires seriously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm glad you bring that up. I mean, I work with a lot of clients who have eating disorders and it's a big topic of conversation on the podcast. And I think that for so many people, like when you're going through it, it's so difficult, but when you come out the other side, like it helps you find yourself really, you know, in a way that, you know, like there's, there's purpose in the struggle, I think. For sure. And I think that it's such an, it's it's so urgent, right? Mm -hmm. That you're forced to kind of stop everything else and to feed yourself, right? I mean, what is it? And I understand I'm using that word on purpose because, you know, I was starving for love. I was starving for all these things. So I had to learn to be able to give to myself in that way. And I think that for those who, and unfortunately, most people don't take the opportunity, right? To see what is the blessing, what is the gift in the struggle. But absolutely, that's why we have challenges in life. The challenges are there to set up to grow, for us to grow and transform and learn something about ourselves that we wouldn't have access to otherwise. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk more about this first step in relationships, the me part. Mm -hmm. And first of all, how would you say someone knows they they need to spend some more time on this part? Well, if they avoid, if they avoid doing it, I think a lot of people don't like spending time alone and, um, and they always need to be busy with something else, friends and this and that. I think also if they are very much reliant on other people's approval and opinions, they need to ask advice from everybody, or they have a lot of shame and guilt and they blame when they make a decision that was they felt was wrong or a mistake. So anything mm-hmm. that feels mean or unkind or negative to yourself means there's a lot of work to do there. Yeah. You were, you were talking about in your book a bit about like um, getting married young and getting married quickly. Mm-hmm. And how how does that relate to that me side of things? So it's interesting because I did get married young. I got married at 23. But as I just shared, I started to do this work from age 17 to 23. My husband and I knew each other, but, and I write this in the book, like if God came down and said, that's who you'll marry, I would have laughed. Absolutely not. There was no spark. We were so different. Um in the 1%, not in the things that really mattered, but I didn't even know that then. And then once I, I really started for, for years to grow this, then I saw him in a way I had never seen him before and vice versa. It was the same experience for him. And from that day, um, we were married nine months later and we're going to be married 23 years in August. Wow. So I don't think it's age per se. I think it's the work. Now, if you start to do this work, you know, again, early, like I'm raising my kids to be that way. They'll ask me, you know, mom, what do you think I should do? I say, well, I can tell you what I think you should do, but how do you feel about it? You know, what feels right to you? I already want that. I want that voice to be in their head. And also the belief systems we're creating or helping them create are kind, right? They're loving because my husband and I have done that work ourselves. So I don't think it's so much age. I think it's about how much self-interest and self-care you have mm-hmm. that matters. Can you share a little bit more about like how how you met and then how you came to fall in love with yeah. your husband? Yes. So we had seen each other in passing because we were both studying Kabbalah. And I remember thinking, and he's only a year older than I am. And I remember thinking, wow, you know, he's only a year older, but he's so disciplined in his study. And I was much more outgoing and, you know, I went to Beverly Hills High School. I had a very different experience in my teen years. 
remember him also noting me that oh, she has such potential. So there was something we recognized in one another that drew in a romantic kind of way. And he explains this, the, the same story. It was exactly the same experience for him. Our hands touched, sparks flew off, and it was like, we don't even know what came over us. And it was as if we never existed before to each other. And a moment later, we knew we were for one another. Mm. And that's how powerful it is. If you really grow that soul aspect of you, that part of you that's connected to something higher and greater, that is connected to empathy and kindness and compassion and vulnerability, then it can happen like that. And it does last because those are the things that stay with you. You know, while sex and attraction and laughter and compatibility, of course, are necessary, a lot of those things are, are not enough, you know, to keep the, the love. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people, you know, people wonder like, what is it supposed to feel like when you meet the person? You know, is it supposed to be immediate sparks or do you grow to care about someone? And I know you also talk about this idea of like, I forget how you worded it, like good enough isn't good enough or something. Yeah, exactly. About settling. I don't think that everybody has to see sparks or feel sparks. And that's why I'm a little, I was a little weary to even explain it like that, but that was what it was for us. I think it's more about, you know, I also can share when we did recognize each other as our life's partner, I still had anorexia Mm. and it was the first time I felt so happy and so seen for who I was. and. I just felt like I belonged. So I think, again, if it's rooted in those feelings that you feel heard and you feel kindness from the person and you feel a sense of belonging and that you can grow together, I think that that, that is so important for too often people don't give that enough weight. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do write in the book about you know the almost. It's like, it's good enough. It's not great, but at least I'm not single better than my friend there who's miserable. And we, you know, and, and for whatever reason, we might feel pressure because we're a certain age or all of our friends are married, or maybe they all have kids already. Um, or maybe our parents like the person, but that's never the reason, you know, because you'll find you will not enjoy that experience later if it really wasn't for all the right reasons. And I talk about that in the chapter, Cinderella syndrome, the cherished delusions we have, you know, we all have illusions of why we're getting married or what marriage will bring us, what a relationship will bring us. And I share that my illusion, which I had one too, was that marrying my husband would spiritually transport me to somewhere higher because I felt like he was so much further. He'd been studying for so many more years than I had. And then when I realized, you know, imagine the shock, I was like, well, wow, that's not how it works. I have to do the work myself. But my illusion wasn't damaging because I didn't have an illusion about who I married, but who I would be in the marriage. Hmm. It's, it's only really dangerous when you think your partner is something else and you married for the wrong reasons. Yeah. And you shared a few stories about that in the book mm-hmm. that I found were really interesting. Maybe you can give the listeners like a peek at one of those. Yeah. Okay. So one story is of a couple who they were high school sweethearts and she, you know, came from a house of straight A students those three sisters, they were all going to the best universities. There's tremendous pressure academically in the home. And her boyfriend, you know, just loved her. He was fun. He never, you know, didn't care about those things. He just wanted to be with her. And even when she went away to university and he didn't stay at home, you know, he waited for her. She waited for him. So when she graduated, they got married. And she knew that he had a drug problem. 
but she ignored that because, you know, he just, he loved her and, and he would take her away from that reality that she grew up in, right? It would be easy. There wouldn't be pressure. This was her illusion about it. Imagine her surprise, you know, after they've been married and now he has a serious drug addiction and they have a child and it's not so romantic anymore, right? This illusion mm -hmm. is completely shattered. She's supporting him and supporting the child and working. And he basically has a growing drug problem. And she didn't leave still, even though she saw the illusion, until she discovered that he had put a video camera in the shower and was recording her and then posting that online to make money to support the drug habit. So she left him after that. But that's the thing with illusions. I mean, when we recognize them, it's important. And even if you're afraid, I think very often people are afraid to change things or break up. But this is the thing about illusions. If you shatter them, and you married for good reasons, then when the illusions are gone, you can focus and build upon the things that are working in the relationship. Mm -hmm. If you married and it was just an illusion, then it's better to know now than later because what becomes intolerable now will be completely unbearable 10 years from now. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. And I think, you know, that is an extreme example. Yes, I know. But I, I think a lot of people are caught in this this middle ground where it's the, it's the good enough isn't good enough thing where they're like, he's great. I mean, I hear this all the time from people in my life. He's great. He loves me. I enjoy him, but I just don't know if he's the right person and they don't really know exactly what's wrong, but it's not exactly right. And I think a lot of people get caught in that and they stay, they stay in it because it's comfortable and people are confused. Like, how do I know if this is the right person or not because nothing's exactly wrong. Is it just me? Is it them? There is another couple in the book. I, I think that this is a this is the part of knowing yourself that's really important that mm -hmm. will help with this. So again, she was like 80% happy with the person. Her parents loved him. They had the same faith and you know they had fun together. So I asked her, well what isn't working? She said, well he still lives at home and he doesn't have a job. And then through, we worked a lot together. She realized that the real reason that she is with him is that she needs to feel needed. Mm -hmm. That gives her a great self of, um, sense of self. And she relies heavily on that, right? So that's why she was really in the relationship. She needed that. But once she started to work on this and realized that she doesn't actually need that, then she was able to say, okay, I deserve more. This isn't enough for me. And I'm not really happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That that's a good example. Do you think that love can trump logistics? Like, let's say someone is like, you know, I love this person so much. We love each other. But then there's, you know, we have a different religion or we want to live in different places. You know, when someone's evaluating, like, is this going to work long term? Uh, I think people get caught in how much should I pay attention to my emotions and I'm feeling versus logistically. Is this going to work? Well, this is the thing. I think that if, for instance, two people love each other, but they want to live in different places. So let's ask the question, why do you want to live in a different place? You know, what is it that you want your life to be like? And then I think that if you both love each other enough, you're going to come to a way where you can find a middle ground that works for both people. I really do believe that. And I think that in relationships, there are some things that are going to matter more to one person. And that's when the other one needs to be more flexible and bend. And then there's other things that are going to marry, matter to the other person. And, and so it's, it's a give and take. And it takes one taking the higher ground, again, depending on what you're more invested in. Yeah. Like, for instance, there's a couple and, you know, they're, they're newly married. And she's saying, 
you know, I love doing giving at my house. We do it all the time, but now he wants to go see his family. I don't understand. So it was just like, I want this. He wants that. And then I said, okay, well, let's break down why he wants this. I mean, this is the first time he's in a stable relationship that, um, I think there's always a way, but it, it requires two people really wanting to see that. I have the same perspective. I think, I think it's hard for people to know when to compromise, you know, and it can be hard when it's like, okay, who's going to budge here and who's not. But I think like, if people really love each other, like I know for me, when I really care about someone, like I'm much more willing to compromise, you know, I'm like, I will openly be like, yeah, we can do that because you care about what the other person, how they feel. Well, don't you find that you care, not you per se, but you care more at the beginning of the relationship. Like when we want to please the other one, we do anything. There is a period where it's that euphoric stage and we tend to overemphasize the positive and de-emphasize the negative. And then that turns around completely the other way, about six months to a year into the relationship. The thing that gets in the way of people not compromising or wanting to see the person's point of view, it's a three-letter word, which is the ego. And that's why in my book, I talk a lot about how it's important to have a spiritual practice, whatever it is, because if not, the ego just gets so big. You know, I want to be right. You won last time in the argument. I'm going to win this time. Or I always say, I'm sorry. It's like, they don't even know what they're fighting about anymore (laughs) to come to some kind of agreement. Yeah, that's very true. And you're also talking about like some strategies with fights that I think are really helpful um, and like kind of ground Mm -hmm. rules for fighting. Can you share some of those? I want to take a brief pause from this episode to tell you about today's podcast sponsor, Native. I know how difficult it can be to find a non-toxic deodorant that actually works, and that is why I love Native. Native deodorant is filled with ingredients found in nature, like coconut oil for its antimicrobial properties, shea butter for moisturizing, and tapioca starch to absorb wetness. Native deodorant is formulated without any aluminum, parabens, or talc, and there's absolutely no animal testing done. Native comes in a wide variety of scents for both men and women, and they have new limited edition seasonal scents throughout the year, which are always fun to check out. Some of their classic deodorant scents include coconut and vanilla, lavender and rose, cucumber and mint, and eucalyptus and mint. And they also offer an unscented formula as well as a baking soda-free formula for anyone with sensitivities. If you notice that when you use non-toxic deodorant, you get any type of rash under your arms, and that's probably a sensitivity to the baking soda. So you would be someone who would love the baking soda-free formula from Native. I've tried so many different non-toxic deodorants. This is one of the most important things to switch to safer. And Native has impressed me so much from the start because it holds up all day long. I love the variety of scents and the scents aren't too much. It doesn't give me any irritation under my armpits like a lot of other natural deodorants do. And there are options for everyone, but most importantly, it actually works. And it can get sweaty here in San Diego, so I very much appreciate that. I've loved every scent that I've tried, but right now I am using the coconut and vanilla, which I highly recommend. There is really no risk to trying it out. Native offers free returns and exchanges in the U.S., and you can save $2 a stick if you subscribe, and Native will deliver it to your door every one, two, three, or four months, depending on how often you go through deodorant. So if you're sick of trying 
non-toxic deodorants that don't really work, it's time to check Native out. And if you want 20% off of your first purchase, visit nativedeodorant.com and use my promo code wellness at checkout to get that 20% off. Again, for 20% off of your first purchase, visit nativedeodorant.com. That's N-A-T-I-V-E-D-E-O-D-O-R-A-N-T.com and use my code wellness, W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S to get the discount. When you try it out, make sure you take a picture and tag me so I can see what scent you got. All right, let's go ahead and hop back into today's episode. The thing is this, I always say that I think that fighting is very necessary in a relationship. I get worried about couples who don't fight. I remember my children's friends, like, you know, so-and-so's parents are getting divorced and the kids don't understand why. They said, we've never heard our parents fight ever <laughs> like, because they didn't care enough about the relationship. I mean, if you really care and you're passionate about it, you are going to argue. So arguing, I think, is actually healthy. The key here is to find a fighting style that works for both of you. So if I'm a screamer and you're the silent type, we're going to have a problem because the more silent you get, the more enraged I'm going to feel, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it, you need to come together and discuss what you're both comfortable with. And usually the style we have is the one we saw in our home and the one we grew up with. It doesn't even mean that we like it, right? So if you come together and say, okay, let's find how we're going to discuss arguments because repair is necessary. If you don't go back and repair after an argument, then you take that into the next one. And then you bring up, oh, remember last week when you did this, this, and that. So it's kind of not option not to go back and do that. One of my favorite tools is the proactive formula, which is when something happens, the first thing you do is pause, you react. This is especially in relationships because once you say things in the heat of anger, it's usually you'll give the best speech you'll ever regret. I forgot who said that, but that's one of my favorite quotes. So the first is to pause and to really say, okay, well, this is coming to me. And then the next thing is to restrict. So you don't say anything. It's hard in relationships, but I like to wait three days to really have like a deep, deep conversation if you're really angry. Because by that time, after three days have passed, then you're able to just tap into what was at the heart of the argument without all of the hurt and the rejection and the anger. And then it's to take a proactive approach. It's to see the opportunity that was there for you. Is there something that you could learn? about yourself or how you can do things differently in the future? Is there an opportunity to grow your relationship from that? And then choose your response. What's your fighting style? Well, what it was when we first got married was the screamer and he was a silent dive. Um, and then after Josh, after our second child, we made a commitment that nothing that happened was greater than our love for each other or commitment to each other. So mm-hmm. we brought in laughter and levity when we would argue and joke, not of each other, but we would just lighten the situation. Like this isn't the end of the world. Like for instance, this happened. uh, And again, we've been practicing this for a long time. So it does take a while, but first you have to understand what's at stake here. If you have so much animosity between each other, you stop being friends. And so you have to prioritize what's really important, which means humbling the ego. And once you get to that consciousness, then you can actually apply this. But we had taken our kids, they were at sleepaway camp, and we just had the youngest one with us. And this is a few years back. She was probably three at the time. And she used to get major car sickness, motion sickness. And I hadn't fully realized how bad it was. Like it's any time she was in anything moving. So we spent the day at this camp and um, it's, it was three hours to drive there. We were there. We got all grimy and sticky and 
you know, she was tired and hungry and we're driving back. And then uh, she also vomited now at this point in the car and there's so much traffic and it it ended up taking us four and a half hours to get home. But in the car on the way home, um, we started to get, I started to get really irritated by the navigation voice. You know, she was like bossing me around as I heard it, (laughs) you know, like turn left. (laughs) So of course, naturally it's taking it out on my husband, which is what partners often do. And in that moment, instead of getting in a fight, we started to play around with the navigation and we started to put in different, um, we put in Justin Timberlake style and it would be like, turn left, turn right. And then we started to like play with all of them as like Santa, like ho, 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 turn left. We just started laughing. We got so silly. So I think that that's our go-to when we get, you know, when things come up and it works every time. I didn't even know you could make the nav speak in Justin Timberlake language. Try it. It's so funny. I know. I definitely need to try that. Well, I think it's also important. Like you talk a lot about making sure you have the friendship there. How do you ensure that? And how do you keep that alive? And why is that so important? A lot of it has to do with continuing to grow appreciation for your partner. I think that a lot of people put a lot of emphasis in finding the one mm-hmm. a lot, you know, double dating, online apps. I mean, everything through so many uncomfortable situations. And then when we find the one, we're like, okay, good. I'm married now. I'm secure. I'm safe. And then we don't mean to, but slowly over time, we have less and less appreciation for them. And, um, and when the appreciation is lost, the love is lost. Of course, you still love the person, but your ability to access it or feel it isn't quite there. And what we start to notice are the things that we don't like, or we wish they'd change, or we wish they could do better. From that space, you kind of stop becoming friends, right? Because to be a friend to somebody, you do need to appreciate them. And then we start to rely on other people, um, like our girlfriends or our guy friends or a hairdresser or a trainer. And we start to talk to them about our issues and even complain about our partner instead of speaking to the person we really need to speak to. And so it's something that happens over time, especially if you don't go back and repair after an argument. I mean, I I see this a lot. And again, it's the ego where couples don't do that, but they do it with their friends. You know, they'll call them the next day and say, I feel really badly about what happened last night because they're afraid of losing them. They don't feel as secure in the friendship. So I think that it's a constant reminder that First of all, the happiest of relationships are based on deep friendships. It's being known and being emotionally intelligent about their life and their day-to-day experiences and wanting to be part of that, really having their best interest at heart. And if if you navigate there, that's a big part of having a happy, successful relationship. Yeah. And something I also really liked that you talked about in the book was like being vulnerable with that person and like sharing all the the little random details and growing a friendship in that way because I think there are a lot of couples where they don't they just don't they don't even know that much about the other person like they don't know all the little things so I love this idea because being a change junkie I really have a healthy appreciation for change it's something that is occurring all the time whether we realize it or not and in couples, imagine one partner is changing individually and the other partner is also changing because again, we're all changing all the time. We have different desires, wants, what we want now. We probably won't want something different in five years from now or 10 years from now. And if you don't make it a point to go back to your partner and to share these little things, it's the small things really, then you might find yourself 15 years down the road or when the kids have moved out of the house and say, you know, I'm not really sure why we're together. What do we have in common anymore? And you really stop being friends and you become more of strangers. So it's so important that you bring each other along 
on each other's individual journeys. Because to be a strong couple, you each have to be strong individually. And then you have to make sure you keep bringing the person back in the loop, back in the conversation and grow that friendship and grow that love. You know, and it's those little small things day to day. I mean, I'll go to my husband often. I'll say, you know, I realized something new about myself today. And he's like, what? Tell me. And then I'll tell him and I get so excited that he actually wants to hear He's that I've chosen that he's the one that I'm going to tell, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I even say like when, uh, or if he finds something that, you know, he's watched that's funny or something that he thinks I would enjoy, which is an indication that he really knows me, right? He'll say, Monica, come in, come in the room. Like I might have my hands full of cookie dough baking and I'll come into his office with my hands full of cookie dough. I'm like, what? Because I don't want to take for granted that again, he's taking the time to share something with me. And I appreciate that. And I, and vice versa, right? It's those little acts of kindness and embracing each other's change and growth and process. Yeah. I think it's interesting for me. I'm not married, but dating. And I can tell immediately, like if I share like a little detail about my day or myself and gauging that person's interest. And if they're just like, I don't care. I'm like, okay, this isn't going to work because like, you want someone who cares about all those little things, even though it seems random or pointless, like it all matters, I think. Well, yes, absolutely. But I do want to just caution and maybe the person can learn to be more thoughtful. You know, sometimes people are just more self-centered, but they don't want to be, you know, mm-hmm. so I wouldn't write them off right away. But I agree with you in that if they're not really that interested fully to that degree, you know, yeah, yeah I think that's an indication. I... I'm also curious about, I would like to talk more about like um, learning about the person's history because mm-hmm. it, it's interesting to me to get people's opinions on how much of their history they share with their partner. And I, I have a few friends who have told me who are married, who said, I don't know anyone they've ever dated before. I've we only, and that like shocked me personally because I'm just naturally an overshare with everyone. Like everyone knows that I share everything about my life to, to everyone. So that's just like out of my wheelhouse. But, um, you know, I have one friend who shared that with me and she said, yeah, he, she said, he said he doesn't want to know any of my history. And like, he doesn't want to talk about his because he just says the past is in the past. And, and my head, I'm like, that scares me. Um, but I'm just curious what you think about, about that and like, how much should people be sharing and how much should they not? <laughs> so this is the tricky thing. If you're in a healthy relationship, one where you've done some of the work in my book, then, and you accept yourself for who you are, right? And your partner does the same, then you come together and you're not going to hold something against one another. You can be vulnerable and it won't be scary, right? I can understand why a lot of relationships don't want to do that. I know a couple who, you know, after they were married, she finally shared how many partners she had had before him. And he just, he couldn't take it because it had, it had been a lot and he judged her and it wasn't fair what he did, but that was his emotional reaction to it. So I think I, you know, maybe if she had told him earlier and they had worked through it, right. So at that point in the relationship, there are obviously already some issues. Yeah. I don't think that's healthy because imagine this, right. So let's look at your friend and and his answer was, you know, it was before you. So now let's say he has a best friend who's a girl and she was there for all of that, right? She saw the girls he was with. She knows all of that. And now she's still his best friend and she knows all of the experiences he's having with his wife. Who do you think he feels closer to emotionally? The best friend. That's right. 
So my question is if, to, for and by the way, they may be happy enough and they may be in love, but the kind of love I'm interested in talking about and the, the things that I set up in my book, I want to elevate love. You're supposed to be in love more and more each year. And it's possible with each passing year that that love grows, but it can only happen if you, there's no space. Mm-hmm. And I think keeping your past from each other, and I bet you it's not just the relationships, it's probably other things. Mm-hmm is dangerous. And it's not fair, you know, really to either person because relationships can give us more pleasure than we can even imagine and not just in the physical sense. Yeah. Well, and I would, I would love for you to talk more about like what makes men feel close to someone versus women. Cause I think there's, it's interesting how it can be different. Yes. It's very different because physiologically, even the way we um, experience intimacy is different. And the things that, like, for instance, for women to feel intimate, that's why we like more foreplay, right? To be able to go and have a conversation and look at each other in the eye and talk about deep things. For that, that's very appealing. And you feel connected right before the act itself. For men, the act itself is where they feel really intimate and really great about it. And I do give an example in my book where there was a couple who had just had a miscarriage and um, a few weeks had gone by, two or three weeks And uh, he tried to have sex with her and she became very upset because she was still grieving. And she's like, is that all you want from me? And he got, he took offense because for him, it was a way to connect. Mm -hmm. And for her, it wasn't. But knowing these things is for sure important because then we can make better choices of how to give love in the way that the person wants to receive it. Mm -hmm. A lot of it is just biology and science, which is amazing. You know, it doesn't have to be as complicated if you just understand that, we experience intimacy differently. I even talk about, you know, cause I, I didn't, I don't have any brothers and my father, he's middle Eastern. He wasn't overly, uh, I mean, he always said he, I, he loved all of us and he would always, you know, kiss my mom and say he loved her. But also there were a lot of other things that weren't really healthy from what I saw, but I didn't really understand this whole intimacy. He didn't have a lot of guy friends either. So I didn't see how men are together. Mm-hmm. And when men are connecting, they're actually standing side by side. And the first time I saw that, my oldest, he was probably 13 or 14 at the time, and I walked into the house and he was in the playroom with like four teenagers. It was stinky and like boy smelly and they're loud. And I had just got home from work and I'm like, well, if they're just going to play video games, why can't they play at home? Because they weren't even looking at each other. They were just like, you know, like, and I, I didn't understand it until I really started to research it. And I said, oh, I get it now. This is how they connect. Now for us, like, I feel like I'm connecting to you. I'm looking at you right now in the eyes. We're talking mm-hmm. about important, deep things. So I feel a closeness to you. I feel a bond to you just like that. That is a very specific difference of how men and women experience intimacy. Yeah, it's it's so interesting to me. I had no idea about the standing side by side thing until I read that in your book. And I thought that makes so much sense to me now because I feel like I make fun of my guy friends who do that. They just sit on the couch next to each other, watch, watch TV. Sports. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm like, exactly. why are you even hanging out together? Exactly. Why did you come all the way over here to exactly. just say like five words to each other? And you know, yeah, I, I know. It's it's so interesting. And I forget where I I heard this, but somebody was kind of breaking down the difference in the release of hormones between males and females when they're upset about something. And I, I forgot who this was. It was a psychiatrist. And he was saying how men, when they're venting, you know, they vent about their day. The, the way that they calm down is like, just, they don't talk about it anymore. 
Like yeah, it's they, in my book also. They're cortisol levels. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yes. So that's why because I talked about this in the fighting chapter. If you're in the middle of an argument, then your husband, boyfriend, whatever goes in front of the TV and puts the TV on, it looks like he could care less about what you're saying yeah. and is ignoring you completely. But in fact, that relaxes him. And for us, it's completely different. By talking about it, by yelling about it, we feel like we're actually making movement and progress in it. It's just completely different. But again, if you don't know this, of course, you're going to take offense to it. and You're going to get even more enraged. Yeah. So how does someone balance that in their relationship, like knowing what the other person needs, but they still want to get what they need, right? So like, so like I am the female in the relationship and I had a bad day and I want to like talk about it. And I want to get to a solution and talk about it. He doesn't respond that way. Is it just him knowing like, let her talk about it and reach the solution? Well, I think it's both, right? If you both have this information about each other and you understand this, then for the woman, right? If you feel like you need to talk, you could say, I know you need a little bit of time and I understand that. So, but I also feel like I need to get this out. Can we speak in an hour or 30 minutes? Because I want to give you your time, but I also feel like I need to be heard. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and vice versa. If he is also now emotionally intelligent of what's happening, he can say to you, you know, I know you need to talk and I want to hear what you have to say. I just need 30 minutes to myself. It's the same thing when let's say a husband is the only one who works and he walks in the house and the woman, you know, she has kids at home and she's done the heavy lifting all day. And as soon as he walks in, she's like, Oh good. You're home. Can you do this? Take care of this, do that. And then he's like, I had a whole full day outside of this. I need a minute too. Right. Mm -hmm. So a lot of fights can come from that. But if you understand this, you know, I always say like text your husband and say, okay, this is what happened with the kids today. I'm really stressed out. Do you think after you come home, you know, can you do X, Y, and Z? Give them, we make these assumptions. Mm-hmm. And based on that, um, we have a major expectations. And then of course, we're going to end up being disappointed. Mm-hmm. Do you think that there's any problems with when couples are just like attached at the hip? Like, you know, is, does there need to be a certain balance of like life outside the relationship, like with friendships? Because I think a lot of people, you know, have trouble balancing that. They don't even know what the right balance is. Do you have any opinions on how that works best? Well, I think it depends on why they're attached to the hip. I mean, I don't believe in being attached to the hip, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, my husband and I are very close. We check in with each other a few times a day. We know, you know, what meetings we're each having. We ask each other, you know, how is that? We're tapped into each other and invested and interested in what's happening and what's important to each other, right? But also we have our own individual things and that's very necessary and healthy. We happen to enjoy each other's company a lot. So I think most often than not, we rather be together and be alone. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, we also desire sometimes just to be with a friend and or just with one of our kids alone. Um, I think that everything is fine. I think it's just more about where is your headspace and what is it that you um, you know, sometimes couples need each other or mm. they rely on each other. They feel insecure or they've made their, their partner everything. And now they don't have outside relationships, right? It depends. Is it from a healthy space? Is it from love or need? Yeah. I think there's a lot of codependency that goes on. <laughs> Again, there is, especially if you don't do that work of self first, mm-hmm. a thousand percent, because if a person was insecure, right. And they never thought they were beautiful, for instance, and then they meet somebody and they're like, Oh my God, you're the, you're the best person. You're just, you're my world. Now suddenly they feel good about themselves. Um, and I, this is why I talk about external feedback is dangerous versus the internal val- it, it, It's the difference between validation and feedback. Um, 
And so if that person now changes their mind, so what are you left with? Now you still feel horrible about yourself because that person mm-hmm. that built you up doesn't believe that anymore. So I think that creates this kind of codependency. Yeah. How, how do you feel about the, the dating landscape now with so much of it being online and how that affects relationships? I think that it, two things happen. I think it creates a lot of um, this idea of variety in people's minds. Like, oh, there's, there's so many people out there. There's so many options. I don't really have to settle. And it's not settling, but like, I don't have to commit. Um, so I think that's dangerous. And I think also it somehow allows people to behave kind of not so kind. They don't have to take responsibility for people's feelings, you know, if like the ghosting and, you know, it's just like all these things that I, yeah, I don't think it sets a good climate for this depth. Yeah. I, I think there's a way to use the apps and there's a way to not, but I think it's, it's hard in the, in this culture we've created where it's very fast paced and a lot of people now work for themselves and they might not be in an office and meet people. So yeah, I don't know. I think it's a, it's a tough line to, to walk. I think that there's more single people now and I think it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. I don't think it's particularly healthy. And again, it's what's the intention in using the apps. I Mm -hmm. think. Definitely. And I, I mean, I think it relates back to communication and how communication styles are changing, just not even just with dating apps, but, you know, kids like generationally, you know, like how much technology you were, you were using and how that affects your communication style. Um, and I would like to segue into communicating about sex because I think this is something that a lot of women who listen to this show struggle with is like, mm-hmm talking about sex with their partner? Yeah. I mean, uh, I think that sex is love in motion. And I think that how considerate you are in the bedroom is probably how considerate you are in the relationship. It's also a place where a lot of ego can exist, especially if one person thinks they're really great or had a lot of partners. They don't really want to be, as they might hear it, instructed. Um, I think that in the healthiest relationships, again, are you friends? If you're friends, you should be able to talk about anything. And if you really are coming from this place of loving the person unconditionally and putting their needs almost before your own to some degree, then you'd be curious to see what pleases them. And you'd actually want to fulfill those and explore together and be curious together. Mm -hmm. So although it can be uncomfortable and it can feel very vulnerable, it's just another area of like, okay, well, if we can't talk about this, what is this indicating for us as a couple? Mm-hmm. Do you think there are certain like questions people should ask or ways to open up the conversation? Well, I think everything should be open in a way of, you know, saying something in the way that you'd want to hear it. So put yourself in their shoes first and see how they would hear it coming from your mouth. And then I think it's not so much about them. You're just expressing what it is that you would enjoy. And because you love them, you know, you want to explore this with them. Mm-hmm. It, it's yeah. really like you could be talking about anything. It doesn't have to be sex, right? But that is how we should be able to navigate any conversation that's difficult as a yeah. couple. I think also this relates back to the the me part of it. I think a lot of people just don't even know what they like. <laughs> you know what it actually is? It even goes back earlier. It's in chapter two. It's the shame of wanting. Mm. Most people have so much shame. They don't even allow themselves 
to want and certainly not to express what they desire. Mm. And to be able to do that, you really need to be okay again with who you are and I'm enough and I deserve good things and therefore I'm going to be able to ask for them yeah, and give them to myself. Yeah. I loved your discussion of guilt, shame versus blame. Maybe you can share a little bit about the differences between those for people. So these are three emotions that people go through a lot. I can gladly say I don't experience those anymore. I used to, I was raised in such a shame filled home. Um, and, uh, and it's very uncomfortable to live like that really. So let's start with, um, blame. So let's say that, you know, a tree falls on your car and it's windy outside. So you can blame the wind for that. Right now, let's say that you parked your car and, um, you didn't notice that the branch was about to break off and it crashes down You can blame yourself for not seeing that and, and, you know, and feeling bad about who you are. And then shame is a whole nother level. Shame is I've, I've done something wrong and therefore there's something wrong with me, right? It's completely denying who you are. And it's very hard to live with that. You can't love yourself fully and experience shame. You just can't. So how does someone start to release that shame? Well, first you have to identify it. Mm -hmm. And then you need to be able to take radical accountability. So that is that everything that happens in my life is an opportunity. If you come from a place that's not a victimhood, then you're not really going to have those feelings, right? Because everything is as it should be. Everything is perfect. Everything's meant to be. So there's no blame here. There's no guilt. When I know better, I do better. Mm-hmm. And there's no shame. And in fact, when you really start living that, you come to love the opposition, meaning that even the people or the things that seem to be in your way or stop you are actually an opportunity for you to do more and be more. I mean, if you think about it and you think about anybody who's opposed things you've done, you have a choice. Do you just blame it on them or do you say, wow, you know, I want to be, that person is motivating me mm. to do more. And I think that that's so much more appealing and that's how you're going to get really what you want. Yeah. I love that perspective. It always goes back to awareness yeah. and our relationship with ourselves. Um, well, I have one last question for you. What do you think about the idea of soulmates? So it's funny because the my book is called Rethink Love, and then it's three steps to being the one, attracting the one, and becoming one. And everybody, for the most part, who I've done podcasts for already, they say um, becoming the one. You know, it's so enrooted in our brain that like there's the one out there. I'm like, no, it's not becoming the. It's becoming one together. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think that people misunderstand soulmate relationships. They think that a soulmate relationship is going to be one that feels amazing and is problem free and is perfection and you just feel great all the time. And yes, you're going to have all of those moments of, you know, laughter, levity, happiness, but a true soulmate relationship is actually somebody who's your mirror, who shows you the aspects of yourself that you need to work on and to grow. And you do that for each other. You see what they have the ability to become and that they have the desire to become and you help them get there. That's really what a soulmate relationship is. And it's work. And the truth is, if people really understood what a soulmate relationship is, most wouldn't want it. (laughs) They'd want the easy, fluffy, you know, I want it all good. But the thing is with this, I mean, ultimately when you help each other transform and grow and your well-being is invested in theirs and vice versa, there's nothing more fulfilling than that. But I think that people can have many different versions of this kind of relationship, this deep love 
that you you journey through life as real partners, not just in the bedroom or sharing a home, but just really through every step of life. Do you think there's only one person out there that's someone's soulmate? I think there's levels. I think like if you've ever met somebody and you have deja vu or you feel a connection right away, right? I think that's a level of a soulmate. Mm-hmm. And I think the more work a person does on themselves to grow those aspects that are connected to their highest self, I think the, the higher level of a soulmate connection you're going to find. I love that. I totally agree. Well, thank you so much, Monica, for coming on the podcast. I've loved chatting with you and I want everyone to go get your book. So can you just tell everyone where they can find more from you and where they can pick up your new book? So you can get Rethink Love on Amazon. It's available on Audible and Kindle. And my website is rethinklife.today. And you can follow me at monicaberg 74 Amazing. Thank you again so much, Monica. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much to Monica for coming on the podcast. I'm sure you guys got a lot of value out of that and you will probably want to go check out her book for even more. You can find more from Monica at rethinklife.today and also on Instagram at monicaberg74 and check out her books on Amazon. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you take a screenshot and share it on social media. Tag me, tag Wellness Wellness Podcast and tag Monica so that we can see that you loved the show and it just helps spread the word about the podcast. And don't forget, if you want behind the scenes access to all things wellness realness and my life make sure you request to follow our super secret instagram account wellness realness crew to gain access to that secret account all you have to do is dm to that account a screenshot of your rating interview on itunes for the podcast once i get that in the dms of wellness realness crew then I can accept your request to follow. And if you want to connect with other listeners, make sure you join our free Facebook group, Wellness Realness Podcast Tribe. Just request to join. I'll add you in there and then you can chat it up with the rest of the Wellness Realness family. That is it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Have an awesome rest of your day and I'll chat with you again next time. Bye.